The Torah tells us that in the drapings that were placed over the Mishkan, as well as in the priestly clothing, which we'll talk about next week, they, had, they were made of wool, and the wool was dyed in three different colors. Blue, wool, purple, um, in Hebrew, tchelet, argaman, tchelet is blue, argaman, purple, and tola chani, which is worm red, or red that comes from a worm. So, worm. So the blue is not only was not only used in the temple in the priestly clothing and in the drapings for the Mishkan, but it was also important for another mitzvah. One of the mitzvahs of the Torah is a mitzvah to have to wear tzitzit. If someone has a if a um, someone has a four cornered garment, a garment with four corners, they have to place tzitzit on that garment. It's a mitzvah for men, uh, Jewish men. And um, although one is not required to wear a four-corner garment, yet nevertheless the Jewish custom is that we wear a four-corner garment in order to be able to fulfill that mitzvah. We also have a tradition that while praying we wear a shawl, a talit, and the talit, the shawl is four-cornered, and therefore the talit also has tzitzit on it. Now the Torah tells us that when we wear the tzitzit, um, it should have these strings on it. Um, our tradition tells us it should have four strings that are doubled over and therefore doubled into eight and they should be tied together with five knots and um, where the Torah tells us that these strings one of these strings should be blue the other strings are to be white wool and white wool or plain wool without any dye and one of them would be will be um, blue and it has to be this techelet color so so therefore, it's important to know, even without the temple standing, to know what the techelet color is in order to be able to make our tzitzit. Now, we don't have any record of how the purple dye or the red dye were made for the Kohanic clothing or for the Mishkan. We don't know how they were made. We know the red dye came from a worm, as the Torah tells us. We don't know which worm. Um, we, have, we are not told anywhere in our Jewish sources how a how the blue dye, how the red dye, sorry, the purple dye, sorry, was made either. However, we are told details about the blue dye because the blue dye was used extensively for the tzitzit. We are told about the blue dye. The blue dye came from a creature called the chilazon, and from the chilazon they would use that to make the blue dye. Now. In the days of the Talmud, the Talmud was written in Babylonia and completed about the year 500. Um, during the days of the Talmud, we know they were using, they were using techelet blue dye for their tzitzit. Um, it was hard to get in, the, in Talmudic times, but they did have it, and the Talmud does describe, and we'll soon talk more in detail, give you more details, um, exactly how it was made. However... In the Gaonic period, the Gaonic period is um, Jewish history is usually split into a number of different periods. Maybe that's a subject for a class of its own, the periods of Jewish history. Um, but we, there's a period that we call the Talmudic period, which ended when the Talmud was written about the year 500. And then there's the Gaonic period. The Gaonic period is when um, Judaism was still centered in Babylon, but Babylon, Babylonia was under Arab control. The Arabs conquered Babylonia in the mid-600s, 
So from about the mid-600s to about the year 1000 is called the Gaonic period, that 350-year period. Um, so in the Gaonic period, we know there was no Techelet available. There was no blue dye anymore. And nobody knew how to get it. So which means that the blue dye fell out of use about between the year 500 and the mid-600s. How did it disappear? What happened to it? We don't know for certain why they stopped using the blue dye. Even though they kept wearing tzitzit, but they started wearing tzitzit without blue dye. But there appears to be, it, it appears that the chilazon, the animal from which the blue dye was created, was only available in the Mediterranean. Which means that in the land of Israel, which is on the Mediterranean coast, it's widely available. In Babylonia or other um, Persia or other countries that are not in the eastern Mediterranean, it is not widely available. Um, we, the blue dye um, would have, that, was, that they got in where the Talmud was, where the major Jewish community was at the time in uh, Mesopotamia and Babylonia, would have been imported then from Israel. Now, Babylonia at the time was part of the Persian Empire. Um, Israel at the time was part of the Roman Empire. Now, the Persians were, at times they persecuted Jews, they were mostly okay um, treated the Jews okay. The Romans always persecuted the Jews. But things got a lot worse in the Roman Empire after Rome adapted, adopted Christianity in the early 300s. And as a result, we know the Jewish community in much of the Roman Empire dwindled, um, particularly in the land of Israel and um, along the eastern Mediterranean, in Israel, Lebanon, Syria, um, the Jewish community dwindled because over there um, that was where the Jews were treated the worst. Um, at a certain point, we know the Romans forbade Jews from producing the chilazon dye. They enacted many laws forbidding different um, Jewish practices over the years. Um, and there were times that they entirely outlawed Jew old Jewish practice. There were times when they outlawed specific Jewish practice. So we know that there were periods when they outlawed the creation of the, of the blue dye from the chilazon. Um, and at the same time, the community, they produced, probably continued to produce it in secret, but the community dwindled in the land of Israel due to persecution. And so it appears that during this period, we lost, they stopped making the blue dye. The blue dye was not readily available. Definitely outside of Israel, it was not available. There was a period in the early 600s that Israel was, that all the Jews of Israel were killed out as a result of a bunch of wars. And so, um, as a result, it appears we entirely forgot what the chilazom fish is, and we forgot how to make the dye. So, starting in the Gaonic period in the 600s, people were wearing tzitzit, and they were wearing the talit without the blue strings, with just the white strings, without any blue strings. Now, the Mishnah tells us that... Tzitzit is still kosher if it doesn't have any blue string. So you can still wear with just white string. It is still kosher. There were some scholars that, um, that, well, that had a different version of the Talmud, a different understanding of the Talmud, um, believed that tzitzit were not kosher without the blue string. Most notable was a um, 13th century scholar from southern France, Rabbi Zrachia Halevi, um, <coughs> 
known as the Baal Hamar, after his book Hamar, um, who believed that without the blue thread, one should not wear tzitzit. And indeed, he did not wear tzitzit or a talit because um, and there were other scholars that followed this view. Uh, it was a fringe view. It wasn't widely accepted that one without the blue thread, one should not wear tzitzit at all. And uh, therefore, they didn't wear tzitzit. To be clear, though, the consensus has always been that we wear tzitzit even without the blue thread, and our tzitzit are kosher, and our talit is kosher, even if it does not have a blue thread. Where did the blue thread come from? Was it a mineral? Was it, a... it came from an animal called the chilazon. We'll talk about what the chilazon is in a minute. We don't know. Some people think so, fast forward now, um, twelve hundred years, and so for twelve hundred years, Jews never had blue dye in their tzitzit. We just didn't have it. We had no access to it. Um, we didn't know where it came from, what this chilazon animal was. Um, it, we didn't weren't sure where it came from, and even if we did know, we weren't sure um, how how to make it and exactly what color it would even be. We know it's blue, but blue, there's a lot of different blues. So in the 1860s, there was a German rabbi called Reb Tzvi Hirsch Kalischer. Reb Tzvi Hirsch Kalischer um, believed that it's important for Jews to move back to the land of Israel and recreate a Jewish state, and over there restore the temple as we had it originally. Um, he wrote a book called Drishat Zion, um, and as a result, they started an organization um, of encouraging Jews to settle in Israel. They even opened the first Jewish settlement in Israel, Mikveh Yisrael, um, sponsored by the Alliance, which was a French Jewish organization. And um, it was, this was the um, prelude or an earlier um, version of what later became, some 30 years later, became Zionism. And so Rabbi Kalisher not only believed that Jews should move back to the land of Israel and we should rebuild the state, but he also believed that we should work to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And so as a scholar, he... Um, was concerned about the question of, can we rebuild the temple in Jerusalem? So there are two possible reasons why we cannot build the temple in Jerusalem. One is political, but assuming, as he did, that once Israel gets independence, they can do whatever they want, and they can um, build a temple wherever they want, because it will be their land, uh, regardless of what may be there currently, um, the question would then turn to a halachic question. Can we halachically, in Jew does Jewish law allow us to rebuild the temple? Now, there are a number of Jewish legal technical problems that would, not, that would make it difficult to build the temple. And he wrote a book to try to, in his book, Yushat Siyon, he dealt with some of these problems about whether it is possible to rebuild the temple. Well, that's a, really a fascinating discussion. And then I think we should do a class on um, whether we can rebuild the temple today. Um, it'd be a fascinating topic. Yeah. So now one of the issues, though, 
that he pointed out was that in order to serve in the temple, you need Kohanim, the priests, descendants of Aaron, to serve in the temple, and they have to be dressed in special clothing, priestly clothing. That will be in next week's parsha. Those priestly clothing um, need to uh, have um, a blue dye in them. The techelet, the blue dye, as well as the purple dye and the red dye. We've got to figure out how to make them. Without the blue dye, the Kohanim have no clothing. Without clothing, the Kohanim can't work in the temple. Without Kohanim, you have no temple. So would it be possible to build the temple? We have to figure out how those dyes were made, and um, we have to try to figure them out. So he just made that point. He didn't go to any great lengths to actually try to figure it out. But what would we need to do? So to figure out where the blue dye came from after more than 1,200 years, now it's probably 1,400 years that the blue dye was not in use, um, we'd have to resolve um, two major issues. Firstly, the blue dye we know came from this animal called a chilazo. We have to figure out what is this chilazo. Even if we could figure out what this chilazon is, we then need to figure out how the dye was actually made. How do you produce the right blue dye from this chilazon? We have to be certain which color it is supposed to be, exactly what kind of blue it should be. And um, we need to make sure that we can accurately produce the correct blue dye from the chilazon. So... We can look back at our Jewish sources, and our Jewish sources do mention the Chilazon in a number of places, and um, they give us some maybe unclear identification for the Chilazon. The Talmud, in the book of Menachos, on page 44, um, offers from a Brita, from an earlier teaching, four identifying features of the Chilazon. It tells us, firstly, its body is similar to the sea. Its creation is similar to a fish. It comes up once every 70 years. And we use the blood to make the tefillet. And therefore, it is very expensive. It only comes up once every 70 years. Sorry? It could be like a dolphin or a whale. A dolphin only comes up every 70 no, years? No, I mean, but it doesn't have to be a fish. How about a locust, like a cassata, something in there? A locust? Something like a mollusk. Mollusk? Okay, we have other midrashim that tell us that the chilazon is found. We have, we have other sources that tell us that the chilazon is found in the Mediterranean Sea. So, we know that it's something that is in the sea. But there is some contradiction because the Torah tells us that um, the tribe of Zavulim was blessed with Sefune Temune Chel, the things that are hidden in the sand, which the Midrash tells us are the Chilazon. So the Chilazon is actually hidden in the sand. Furthermore, the Talmud tells us. Furthermore, the Talmud tells us that you would come out when the chilazon would appear, and the hills would be covered in the chilazon. 
which appears it was something that you would actually see on land. We know elsewhere the Gemara in Sha- the Talmud in Shabbos, the book of Shabbos, tells us that the chilazon has a shell, and the shell needs to be broken in order to get the blue dye out. And the, the Talmud discusses whether one is allowed to break it on Shabbos. It's a, like, it could be a sea turtle or a, sh- or a snail. A snail, a sea turtle. It would, it would appear by that definition that that creature would not be considered a kosher creature. Very good point. The creature is not a kosher creature. Very good point. And it says so explicitly in um, the Midrash that the, the creature, the chilazon, is not a kosher creature. Um, even though generally for most mitzvahs we only use kosher creatures, um, scholars debate as to whether this is not considered this is only a preparation for a mitzvah, something the main mitzvah is the wool, and this is only something that enhances the mitzvah. There's different explanations as to why we can use a non-kosher creature, but it is clear that it is not a kosher creature. While we're on the kosher subject, you have said to us in the past that we are not allowed to wear linen and wool together, yet you said in the tabernacle that there was specifically a linen wool layer. Very good. So the tabernacle was not worn. It was part of the covering. Um, uh, How can we... Therefore it was wool and linen. But also in the priestly clothing there was wool and linen. Um, But the same Torah that forbade us from wearing wool and linen instructed the Kohanim to wear wool and linen. So the Torah can make exceptions to its own rules, and it often does. <laughs> but that's a little bit off topic. Thank you. But I did want to address it. So, in addition to figuring out what this chilazon actually is, we would also need a chilazon that can co- correctly produce the proper dye. So you'd have to know how to produce it. So the Talmud says, tells us how the dye was produced. It describes it to us and says as follows. It says, the, the, we brought the blood of the chilazon together with other ingredients. <laughs> and it was cooked. It was cooked together in a pot. And we used that to get the proper dye. Now, we also would need to know exactly what color the dye is. So, we are told that the color of the chilazon is the same color, the color of the, sorry, the techelet, the blue, is the same color as the sea, which is the same color as the sky. We have an even further identification of the color of the blue. We are told that the Color of the techelet is the same color as kale ilon. Kale ilon is a plant or tree-based, plant-based blue dye that was also widely used in the ancient world. And we are pretty certain we know what kale ilon is. We're pretty certain that it is, it is the indigo plant. So indigo would then be, and that indigo is also a color, and so techelet would then be um, indigo, the color indigo. So we then know exactly what, we have a pretty good idea what color the blue actually is. So the first one in modern times that attempted to produce, to find this chilazon 
and produced the dye was a Polish rabbi by the name of Reb Gershon Henech Leiner. He was a rabbi in a town called Radzin. He was a Hasidic Rebbe, and he was known as the Radziner Rebbe. He was a brilliant, um, brilliant individual, a great Torah scholar. Um, when he was a young man, a teenager, um, the Talmud tells us, the, sorry, the Maimonides tells us that the Mishnah covers um, 63 booklets. Of those booklets, the Talmud only discusses 37 of them. The rest, the other 23, the Talmud doesn't discover, this, uh, doesn't um, cover at all. Maimonides tells us that there once was Talmud for those other books, but they, it was lost. And whether it means that the final Talmud version was there, uh, it existed, or whether there was just an earlier study that we no longer have, um, itself is an, it's a question that historians debate. Um, but Maimonides then says that if somebody wants, because the Talmud often moves from topic to topic, <coughs> and often discusses different halachic topics in different books of the Talmud, in theory, somebody could put together a Talmud on other books that don't have, other books of the Mishnah that don't have Talmudic commentary. So Reb Gershon Henech Lehner, when he was a teenager, decided to do just that. He put together Talmud on two of the most difficult books of the Mishnah, Kalim and Taharos, uh, Kalim and Ahalos, that don't, uh, books of um, ritual purity, that, uh, that discuss ritual purity that don't, we don't have Talmudic commentary. And so he put it together, culling from different parts of the Talmud and other Midrashic sources, um, kind of creating his own Talmud on it. And then he went ahead, the two classic commentaries on the Talmud are Rashi and Tosvot. And so he wrote his own commentaries of Rashi and Tosvot using their styles on these books. And this was all when he was a teenager. So he was a very brilliant individual, um, great scholar. He also was a self-taught scientist, um, and he taught himself um, chemistry and physics and mathematics and biology and um, was very, very well-versed in the sciences. And so he decided that he was going to find this chilazim. Um, so he traveled to Naples, which at the time had the largest aquarium um, on the Mediterranean, and over there, he studied many, many different sea creatures um, available that exist in the Mediterranean. And after spending much time there um, and conferring with, um, with other biologists and conferring with, che with chemists, he concluded, and he, he made multiple trips there, he concluded that the chilazon was the common cuttlefish. The common cuttlefish is a is a squid-like creature that is widely found across the Mediterranean. This is a picture of what it looks like. It's a squid-like creature. Um, sorry? There is a bone. There is a sort of shell over the top. 
right? There is a short sort of shell over the top, as you can see. Um, its Latin name is um, Sapia officinalis, um, and it, as you can see, it has a bluish, clearish body, which would make it look somewhat like the color of its its body. Somewhat looks like the color of the sea, and it's somewhat shaped like a fish, and um, has sort of a shell, and um, like other squids. Um, when it's attacked, it shoots out a um, it shoots out a liquid, a black liquid, and so he believed that he could um, that this is the chilazon, and he we could he could produce the blue dye from the chilazon, and so he traveled back to Poland, and um, after many attempts, he managed to create a blue dye um, coming from this. Um, coming from this common cuttlefish. And so he published a book in 1882 um, about his findings, um, traveled around Eastern Europe to get support um, for what he found. Um, many questioned that he published subsequently two other books defending those that had questioned his findings. Um, and he opened a factory in Radzin, which was his hometown where he was a rabbi, um, where he began to produce the blue dye for people to use in Tzitzit. <coughs> Before his death in 1891, he taught his son, who succeeded him as Rabbi of Radzin, Reb Mardachai Yosef Leiner, um, how it was made. It, after, in his, after his death, he taught his grandson, Reb Shmuel Shlomo Leiner, um, how to make the um, techelet. And um, for the next... Fifth, almost 50 years or so, um, the, this factory in Radzin continued to produce techelet, um, and his followers and um, other Jews, Polish Jews, or Eastern Jews, in, Jews around the world, began to wear it. Most scholars, though, um, were, most scholars, though, questioned whether this was the real chilazon, and it never really caught on. The vast majority of Jews never actually began to dye their tzitzit with it. Before the Holocaust, his grandson, Reb Shmuel Shlomo Leiner, uh, who was a rabbi of Ridzin at the time, um, was afraid um, that in the war um, the, he would die and the secret of how to make it would be forgotten. So he taught 10 people how to make the, how, the details of how to make the blue dye as his grandfather had taught them, and hoping that one of them will survive. Reb Shmuel Shlomo Leiner was killed by the Nazis, as were, was the entire Jewish community of Radzin, as much of the Jewish community of Poland, and not a single one of the people whom he taught before his death survived the war. And so the secret of how they made the chalazon, how they made the techeled, appeared to have died. However, many of his followers did survive the war and make it to the land of Israel. In the land of Israel, in the 1950s, um, they discovered that the chief rabbi of Israel, Rabbi Herzog, had, uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac Herzog, had a letter from the um, Radzina Rebbe um, from Gershon Henechleiner that described in detail 
how the chilazel was made, how the tchelet was made. And um, it involved boiling it um, at 900 degrees three times over um, and putting in um, iron, putting in some other things. And so they built a factory in Israel where the chilazon, they made based on this, they managed to figure out how to make the blue dye and it is still made till today, the Radziner Techele. Now, Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac Herzog was a Polish rabbi who became, was, um, who became the chief rabbi of Ireland. And later, in the 1930s, after the death of Rabbi Cook, who was the first Ashkenazi chief rabbi of Israel in modern times, um, Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac Herzog w- uh, was appointed as the chief rabbi of Israel in the 1930s. In 1913, he did his doctorate at the University of London, and his doctorate was on ancient Jewish dyes. And a big part of it was trying to figure out how the original Techelet was made, which in his research for his doctorate, where he had written to Reb Gershon Henach Leiner and had asked him, um, for details of his own die, and that's where that letter that we mentioned had come from. Now, he took the die, he, managed, he also took, bought the die that the, they were producing in Radzin, and he sent it to a lab to be analyzed. Um, and he was told that what they had produced was something called Prussian blue. Prussian blue is a, is a color. It's also a chemical, um, known by its chemical name as ferrocyanide, which is made from potassium mixed with iron. So potassium mixed with iron makes this chemical uh, heated up, uh, heated at very high temperature, makes this chemical called ferrocyanide, which is a Prussian blue, um, or this blue color, and it's used as a dye. Now, what the, chemi- what the lab also noted was there was no organic trace in the dye from the cuttlefish. So what the chemists understood was, so essentially blood, um, for most creatures, has potassium in it. And when burned, if you burn blood and burn it for a very long time at very high temperatures you will essentially burn out or evaporate most of the different chemicals in the blood, uh, leaving you with ash that is mostly potassium. And so essentially what they had done was they had burned out the blood, leaving them with potassium, thrown in some iron, um, cooked it together, creating potassium, this ferrocyanide, which is... Prussian blue, which is this chemical Prussian blue, which creates this dye. Rabbi Herzog questioned if that would be the real dye, because that kind of dye, in theory, could be made using any blood. With putting it through the same process, would essentially make the same dye. It wouldn't be unique to this particular squid. It could be made with any blood. Um, he also questioned whether the chilazon itself was a squid or this cuttlefish. 
In Arabic, the Hebrew word, the, sorry, the, the word chilazon is used till today in Arabic, and it means a snail. And indeed, in modern Hebrew, indeed, in modern Hebrew, we use from the Arabic chilazon, it's also in um, Farsi as well, we use the word chilazon for snail. And so he believed that the chilazon was a snail. Furthermore, as we mentioned, we, the, we said the chilazon is in the sand and it can be seen when it comes out over the hills. If it was the cuttlefish, the cuttlefish is a sea creature that never comes onto dry land. And so he believed it must be a species of water snail that lives in the Mediterranean and comes up at times on the sand and crawls up on the hills. Every 70 years, Sir Rabbi Herzog noted that there is no creature known in the Mediterranean that only shows up every 70 years, at least that modern science is aware of. But what he suggested is that likely this snail is something that reproduces at a slow pace. So what very likely happened is what very likely happened is the snail would be uh, harvested for its dye in large amounts. It would be depleted. There wouldn't be many left. It'd be very hard to find, which is why the Talmud also mentions that it's very difficult to find. And then, after years of them not harvesting it, then they would multiply, they would resurface in large numbers, and they would harvest them again, creating this 70-year cycle. Anyway, that's his theory of why the Talmud says there was this kind of cycle. So Rabbi Herzog, in his thesis, was not able to identify for certain which snail it was. He spent many years trying to identify which of many different species of water snails it could be. One snail that he suggested was the murex. The murex is a water snail that comes up on land. And archaeological digs have shown factories with murex shells along the Mediterranean coast. Um, in other words, it was used in ancient times. And presumably, we don't know exactly what it would have been used, what they were using the snail for, but if they had piles of shells on floors of where they were producing something, um, then presumably they were using it for dye. Now, the murex snail, its blood is actually clear. However, after it's out in the air for a few minutes, it turns purple. Purple. So Rabbi Herzog therefore believed that this was probably a, used for a purple dye, but he could not get it, try as he might, he could not get it to turn blue. And so he presumed, therefore, it was not meant to be, it was not the um, fish he, uh, it was not the, um, the chilazon. Furthermore, uh, the murex snail, here's a picture of it, um, does not really, not a very nice looking creature. Um, it also doesn't really look like the sea in any way, right? We said its appearance is like the sea. Its body is like the sea. 
Um, and um, its creation is like a fish. It no. doesn't really look like a fish either. So it doesn't really fit the identification. So Rabbi Herzog found another snail that is widely found in the Mediterranean, comes up on the sand, that uh, called the Janthina. Now the Janthina is a blue water snail where, if you look over here, the color of the snail, this is a picture of the Janthina, um, the color of the snail is light blue, very much looking like water. Um, it's not really the shape of a fish. It's hard to explain how any snail is the shape of a fish. But he thought, sorry? <coughs> kind of? Yeah, Maybe? Angles. Okay. Sorry? The angle, how it goes. Maybe the angle. Um, but he thought it is. Um, but it does at least have the color of water, so he thought it would be the Janthina. Try as he did, he was not able to produce blue dye using the blood of the Janthina. So um, he was not able to figure that out. In the past few decades, and Rabbi Herzog, uh, this is Rabbi Herzog died um, some 50 years ago, um, in the 1950s, so more than 60 years ago. Um, in the past few decades, there has been a renewed interest in finding the techelet, in finding this blue dye. Now, more recent archaeological finds, um, both in Afghanistan and on, um, on islands in, the Medi on, um, on, in Cyprus and other places in the Mediterranean, have actually produced uh, material that survived um, that was dyed with that was dyed blue, amazingly dyed blue. We know that the Tehelet dye um, was a dye that never, um, never um, faded. faded. Thank you. Over time, it stayed strong even after a very, very long time. Amazingly, we found these materials that were dyed blue. Um, with, with blue that remained strong blue even after thousands of years. Now, lab tests that were done showed that the material actually came from the murex snail. So, chemists found that the blood of the murex snail has a large quantity of a chemical called bromo-indigo which is a purple color, and it, that's what makes, when it's out in the open, out in the air, that's what makes the blood of the murex turn purple. However, bromo-indigo is actually made up of two chemicals, bromo, which is more of a reddish chemical, and indigo, which is a blue chemical. Now, when left in the sun for a little while, or when heated up on a low flame, um, in steam, what happens is the bromo evaporates quickly, leaving behind plain indigo and making, leaving it essentially the same color as the indigo plant, the exact same color. In fact, the chemical creating the color is the exact same chemical as the, the indigo chemical, which is the same chemical found that creates the indigo co color in the, from the indigo plant. And so, um, so 
Historians suggested, and archaeologists thought, based on these findings, that both the biblical purple, the argaman, and the biblical blue, the techelet, were both made from the murex snail. The purple would be made by cooking it as is and settling it without allowing for evaporation, while the blue would be made with evaporate, allowing for evaporation, where the bromo chemical would evaporate, leaving you with indigo, leaving it, blue, leaving it an indigo blue. So this is something that 1970s, early 1980s um, was developed by historians, archaeologists, um, different, and, um, and uh, chemists. Building on these um, academic conclusions, um, a scholar in Israel, Rabbi Eliel Tavgar, in the um, 80, 1980s, began to dye, managed to create, recreate this blue dye, and began to dye tzitzit using blue, using this murex. He built a um, factory and an organized to produce this blue dye, and he built an organized. He wrote a book called Ptil Techelet, and he built a organization by the same name to promote the usage of this blue dye from the murex snail um, in the um, uh, for tzitzit, and. Um, He's promoted this widely. He's gotten some scholars to um, support his work. And if you go to Israel today, they do, you could do tours of the Ptil Techelet factory in southern Israel and see how they are producing the dye. Many still question the validity of the dye. The murex, as Rabbi Herzog had pointed out, does not look like a fish nor is its color the color of the sea. Furthermore, scholars have pointed out, this dye made from the murex is chemically identical to the indigo dye. There is no way to differentiate. Now, the Talmud makes it clear that it is possible to differentiate. Though very similar and hard to differentiate, it is possible. In fact, the Talmud mentions that there are different things that can be placed on, that can be, that if you have a garment, if you rub it with different things, different, and goes through a list of different things that you can make and rub it with, that if, it's, that if it comes from Kale'ilon, the dye comes from Kale'ilon, from indigo, it will, you can erase the dye. But if it comes from the Techelet, from the Chilazon, it will not fade at all. And so, um, however, as we have it today, oh, the, the murex, that, um, the, the blue dye that produced from the murex is essentially indigo dye, just from, a, um, just from an animal source, not a plant. But it's the same chemical, same dye, and there's really no chemical difference between the two. So because of these problems and many other problems, there's been many books um, written on this in the last couple decades, um, many scholars or most prominent scholars question whether um, these dyes are um, accurate. So in conclusion, there are two types of techelet that are available today. There is one techelet produced by the Radziner Chsidim, 
um, coming from the common cuttlefish um, produced by, um, based on the um, findings of Rav Gershon Henech Lehner. There is another techelet produced by the Ptil Techelet organization led by Rabbi Tavgar um, coming, producing techelet blue dye from the Murex snail. There's some doubt about both of them um, until we actually find, as um, one archaeologist put it, until we actually find tzitzit with the blue dye on them, we will never know for certain which one it is. Neither of the, while both are used um, by some people, neither have been universally adopted by Jews um, around the world. And most scholars believe that there isn't enough evidence or there are enough questions on both um, to question whether either of them are indeed accurate. They do not look the same. They are not the same blue. One is a what's called a um, Prussian blue, and one is an indigo blue. They are different blues, yes. And halakhically, though, would you be okay to use... Now, there are some scholars that question that whether wearing the wrong color um, would make all your tzitzit no good. In other words, um, you have to wear white tzitzit and blue dye dyed in the proper manner. If you have tzitzit colored in a, the wrong color or dyed in the wrong manner, um, there are many scholars that believe that it would not even be kosher and therefore better not to wear um, the, the, blue, the blue that is available. So, um, scholars say it's okay. so there is this debate over it. There is no consensus. Some Jews wear one of the other types of techelet. Um, most do not. There is, I, don't, I am not aware of a single uh, leading posik or halachic scholar um, who supports using either of the two. Um, and so um, I definitely, my recommendation would be to stick with the plain white until further notice, <laughs> until we find more. But it's still fascinating to know that the other colors, the other forms of blue have been discovered and are in use. Now the truth is that we have um, 613 commandments that the Torah gave us. Of those 613 commandments, about two-thirds of them are no longer applicable um, because many of the commandments are only applicable in the land of Israel while the temple is standing, while we have a Sanhedrin, a Supreme Council, um, and so uh, and, and a Jewish judicial uh, halachic judicial system, so most of the Torah is actually no longer applicable because about two thirds of it, only about a third of the commandments are actually applicable today, um, because um, without the temple, without Jewish uh, religious state, um, with a Sanhedrin with a Supreme Council, so. Um, we could say, in other words, that the Torah as we have it today, the commandments that we have today, are really a um, watered-down version of Judaism. We have a, um, if you will, we have the shortened version or the smaller version of Judaism because we only have about a third of Judaism are we, we are able to fulfill. The rest of it, as fulfilled in temple times, as fulfilled in the days of Moses, is no longer applicable. 
including, um, as far as we know, the law of with the mitzvah of wearing blue on one's tzitzit. And so that's at least one of the reasons why we Jews constantly pray throughout our prayers. We pray for the coming of Moshiach. Moshiach is, um, we've done a class about the com- Moshiach. Moshiach is a, um, a Jewish leader who is going to restore the, uh, bring all Jews back to Israel, restore the temple, restore the Davidic um, dynasty, and uh, restore the Sanhedrin Supreme Council, restoring Judaism back to the way it was. And we want Moshiach to come because our prophets have told us that all suffering will cease then and um, it will be a time uh, of pleasantness where we won't deal with many of the troubles that we deal with today or the whole world will recognize God. But we also want Moshiach to come because that will allow us to get the full Judaism, the full version Today we only have what you could call the basic version uh, of Judaism. We only have about a third of it. And so all of these mitzvahs that we are now missing out on, we will be able to fulfill as well. Um, For example, our seders today, which is one of the most important parts of Judaism, um, the seder on Passover, we only, we eat the matzah and we eat the bitter herbs, but we are missing the main part of the seder, which is the Passover sacrifice. In temple times, the main part of the Seder, they would do their Seders in Jerusalem. Everyone would go to Jerusalem for Passover, and they would offer a Passover sacrifice, and they would eat the meat of the sacrifice at the meal, at their Seder. That was the main part of the Seder, and in much of the Seder, we ask God to restore the temples so that we can go back to the real Seder. And the same is also with the tzitzit. Today we wear the tzitzit, we don't have the blue dye, and so we ask God to restore our temple, restore Um, everything back to the way it was so that hopefully we will then be able to find um, with um, the prophets that we'll have then be able to find, discover, rediscover that blue dye, the techelet. Maybe one of the two arounds are correct. Uh, Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's a hybrid. We don't know. Um, But we will find out um, in the future when Moshiach comes.